0: Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney, and I'll be your host that's gonna guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-Suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-Suite executives those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at CEO.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Today's guest is Neil Smith, Head of Infrastructure in the Scottish Government. In the realm of governmental services, it's unusual to hear words such as maverick or trailblazer. But that's exactly what Neil is. He's a hyper-progressive infrastructure expert with an eye for innovative tech. He's also fiercely protective of his team's ability to research and execute cutting edge solutions. Having spent his entire professional life within the Scottish government, he's worked on and led dozens of boundary pushing projects that include leading the charge to a complete multi-cloud infrastructure way ahead of schedule. He is very passionate about multi-cloud, and we're going to dive into some of um, some of his stories right now. So Neil, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. It's great to have you.
1: Thanks, Craig. Great to be here.
0: So I've given you a bit of an introduction, I've teed you up, and obviously, I'm going to be speaking a lot about what you've done with the Scottish government. My first question is, what made you go straight to that sort of role following your university?
1: My original plan was on joining the government, given that when we're talking about a technical element and the government can be deemed maybe slightly behind the curve on those type of things, was what the government's great at is they have a great training budget, a great training plan, whereas maybe many enterprise companies maybe don't have as big a budget on on the training. So the idea was, was to take what I'd learned at university and then to use the government and suck up all their training budget to learn some of the cool new tech and then move out into the, the cool enterprise world to the, the, the big banks or the Googles, et cetera. And then you, um, you fast forward X amount of years and yeah, here I am, still here.
0: <laughs> and in terms of what's kept you there, it's been 23 years. I've asked you sort of what made you go there from uni, but what's kept you there this whole time?
1: Yeah, it's crazy. If if you'd if you'd asked me way back at the start that you know in 20 23 years, I would still be there. I'd say, well, that's never going to happen. But the reason that's kept me there is is I think I've been quite unique and quite lucky in, in both regards. Over the years, so I came in as a, as a developer and NNT system administration. So I'd always done Unix personally and in, in my personal time, et cetera and then into infrastructure architect to head of infrastructure, extremely lucky. I've, I've had autonomy through a lot of those roles, which is quite unique in the government because it can be very narrow scoped or you could be micromanaged or a lot of the work can maybe be done, can be outsourced um, to SI service integrators and, and so forth. So having that autonomy is hugely powerful for me. We'll probably come, come on to it, but I have um, sometimes some crazy ideas. I like to explore and push the boundaries, etc. And And that can be sometimes a little bit difficult in the government, but a really good track record. So now I get that full autonomy, kind of bit, plus the wide scope. It's always worried me if I was ever to to leave the government and move into the, um, the private sector. My scope would probably go from a very large, wide and varied into a very narrow focused. And I think the type of individual that I am is I like to see the bigger picture, the strategic piece and and how we can use technology to help deliver that. So yeah, I think it's been I'd like to say it's been well orchestrated by me, but I, th- I think a large part of it is probably probably luck in terms of having that autonomy and that wide scope. But yeah, I'm I'm still here. I still enjoy it. And you know tech's evolving so quickly now and it's quite cool to be in a position where we can can explore and consume and, and deliver to the end user, which is our uh, the people of Scotland, effectively.
0: I mean, you must have seen so many changes over those 23 years. Were there any particular career highlights that stand out for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I've done numerous projects over the years and you'll find out that, you know, it's my guys that are kind of, you know, the real, real driving force behind it. But recently, I don't know, just pre-lockdown, maybe a few years before pre-lockdown, we were we we're no different from most large government organizations and maybe some private organizations as well. As we still have a large Oracle Spark estate. And we're trying to modernize and transform that. But that's a challenge, right? You hear all about the the large organizations like even AWS, and you know, they were trying to migrate away from their Oracle products, and it takes a long time, right? And they've got a, a large workforce that, are, that are with a large amount of money. So what we were looking to try and do in, inside that this project was, was to migrate away from Oracle Spark into x86, right? And so you can't really lift and shift that. It's, it's totally different architecture, a uh, processor architecture. But what we successfully managed to do inside that project where we ran it as a proof of concept to see if we could do it. And it's a bit of a sliding scale. We used a relatively simple application, but we took a Oracle Spark workload and migrated it into a, a VMware platform, x86, And then I started pushing the boundaries and saying, well, okay, if we can move it from a physical Oracle Spark workload into a a virtualized X86 workload, how can we actually then modernize that even further? So we then took that same workload and migrated it into VMware Cloud on AWS. And that was a huge success. And it's a story that resonates with a lot of people. And I kept pushing the boundaries. I started to say, okay, can we now use the VMware Cloud in AWS as a DR strategy? So if we have an on-premise VMware workloads, can we use the VMware Cloud in AWS to run it as a DR scenario? And what we actually done is we actually proved that. Um, so taking the legacy workload, virtualizing it onto a totally different uh, uh, X86 platform, and then run it as VMware Cloud in AWS, and then running it as a DR scenario. And when, I, when you actually put a time around that, it took three people three weeks to do that right and it's like that's crazy if you told me at the start and um, that's hugely powerful now i mean no no excuse it was a relatively simple applications some other applications need a lot more kind of rework etc and um, so i'm not I'm not trying to say it was you know one one size fits all but three people three weeks from starting the project to actually delivering. And most of that time, or a large percent of that time, is actually network connectivity between your on-premises state and the, the, the cloud estate. because we were still in their infancy back then using, using using cloud. So I'd like to say that's one of there's numerous ones, Craig. But yeah, the Spark 10, Series on the VMware, and then onto the VMware Cloud on AWS. And it's a story that resonates to a lot of people. And they're like, man, that's actually that's cool. Uh, I've, I've talked about it on numerous platforms, on podcasts and um, on stage, reInvent and VMworld, et cetera. And the many people that come up and went, man, I need to find out more about that. So it's great, right? When people actually see what you're doing and go, yeah, I have that problem. Can you tell me more?
0: Yeah. And how instrumental is your team to, you know, helping you with those projects? I know I know you, like I, I mentioned the, the description that you're very protective of, of your team and um, you want to give them the space to to research and and you know innovate. You know how how do you manage that and how do you work with them on that? Yeah, the phrase
1: I always use is is the, my guys are the geniuses, right? These the, these are the guys that are doing the kind of hard work and having to to learn continually, etc. When I always ask them, it says, well, what would you refer to yourself as and stuff like that, and they all kind of go, oh, we're just like kind of geeks and stuff, and I'm like, oh, okay, and. The real thing about them is 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 they enjoy what they do. So all I am is is if I provide the right culture and the right environment to allow them to enjoy what they do, then the success kind of speaks for itself. And all I am as part of that collective team is I'm I'm the, the mouthpiece, I'm the spokesperson to say, hey, you know, I'm leading it and I'm I'm trying to drive it, but it's these guys that are having to to, to navigate those the crazy world of IT at the moment and the, the high rate of change, et cetera. But for me, it's the culture and environment as the government can be very red tape and bureaucracy. There's, there's, there's still a lot of that. And it's my role to try and protect the guys from that um, and allow them to be creative and innovative. And traditionally, the government is you don't really, we don't really have an innovation budget or a space to be creative. There's generally a project initiation and in any a project delivery day and if we're not going to deliver on time and sometimes these can be politically hot potatoes in terms of hey you've got to deliver on time you can't be late there's a lot of maybe things will get de-scoped just so you can deliver on time and what I want to do is protect my guys from that but what I say to the guys is is you've got to do your day-to-day work right that's the you can use standard tickets etc you know it's not not the most glamorous kind of thing in the gap allow them to be creative and, and explore as much as possible and they'll always try and exploit technologies even our current technologies they'll they'll try and exploit but even they'll come up with a new idea and go hey can I have a look at that and it might not be relevant but there's so many examples over the years that something that wasn't relevant 6 months ago actually becomes a requirement or its a solution needs to be to be made and the thing that they looked at that 6 months prior then becomes relevant and it means we can really hit the ground running and what i will say is is none of that is rocket science right it's relatively straightforward but in the government it seems like i'm a bit one of those unique people that you go how, how do you manage etc and it's like well it's not really difficult right it's about it's about people and and and, and allowing them that that can kind of the ability to perform to their to what they're good at and i always say like a happy person is a productive person so if you create that environment while shielding them from the red tape and bureaucracy, then they, they kind of flourish. And then it makes my job easier because everyone says, hey, Neil, you're doing a great job. And I'm like, well, hey, it's those guys that are doing the great job. I'm just trying to enable them to be able to do a great job.
0: Yeah, and I, I, one of the things I found quite interesting was one of the, the things that you do is you, you you ask them to come in, you know, so obviously there's remote work, but they come in, you let them play with the devices and the boxes, and, and that also creates... Well, it sparks ideas, and then they come to you, and then then you look to roll them out. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea?
1: Yeah. So, in that gap, I'm pretty liberal. I'll go, just do what you want, right? You've you've done you've done what's needed to be done, but they they love what they do, and what I love is the guys coming into me and going, "Hey, I've got this great idea," but then it's not just a, a conversation between myself and the individual with the idea. It's like, well, let's get everyone else in. And let's discuss, because what you find is having that, that eclectic group of people coming up and went, hey, that's a good idea, but what about this component of it? Have you thought about that? And that's how, over, over the years, that's how some of our great solutions have just kind of morphed into this, like, great idea and great solutions, but then everyone feels part of it, Right. Some people might not be part of they might they might not contribute much, but they're they're all contained inside it. They all understand it. And that makes it easier when you're trying to deliver something, particularly when you're trying to prove something. It's all about what I try and do is do a the idea is, is run a proof of concept. So when you run a proof of concept in the government, it can be a lot easier. Things you can break down a lot of barriers that way. Where you say, Hey, I'm just I'm just trying something. So you can engage with a vendor and say, Hey, I want to use your product, but could you give me 30 days free license or three months, et cetera. And again, that's one thing I'm big at as well, is it's the the vendor relationship and the trust element of that. But it's the engagement with the team to allow them to to collaborate and explore and make everyone feel part of that. So when we ultimately deliver on a proof of concept, they're all part of that team. They all they all feel that buzz. I always used to say back in my my early days when you're doing a developer, right? Is the um you would you'd write a bit of code and you try and compile it. And then it would, you know, it would it would fail, it wouldn't compile. And then you try and fix it and you go through that iterative approach. But once you get to actually compiling, you got it's that's that dopamine, it's that that rush is like, yes. And it's the same thing sort of delivering a project where you know actually, hey, that's been quite cool. But but generally how we we'll look at it is we'll do a proof of concept. Sometimes they're just internal infrastructure style challenges that most people don't ever see. I always say for infrastructure. People just expect it to work. And when it doesn't work, it's like, oh my God, this is crazy. And I always relate it to like your gas and electricity can firms. People just expect the gas and electricity to work. But when it fails, it's it's incredible. It's like, oh my God, this is this is a travesty, et cetera. And, and it's the same with infrastructure. But in reality, what they don't realize is, is, you know, we're not we're not just implementing a solution and sitting with our feet up. You know, you have to maintain that, but you build in resiliency and redundancy into the solution that that allows your ability when you've got that to then explore new cool technologies because you're not doing a lot of the operational overheads. It's, we might come on to it later, but we're really big on automation. So, Nobody wants to repeat the same thing over and over again. And if you're repeating the same thing over and over again, you might as well automate it. Because then, once you automate it, that frees up more time. And that time that I give to my guys is is just going to be creative and innovative. So it's in their interest to automate as much as possible because they can do more of just the exploring phase.
0: And uh, let's talk about some of those bigger projects uh, within the government um, with a focus on multi-cloud. I know. Um, you completed quite a large multi-cloud project ahead of schedule, which is unusual to hear of. What convinced you to adopt that sort of multi-cloud infrastructure as early as you did? And, you know, what was the approval process like and can you tell us anything that sort of stuck out in terms of that project?
1: Sure. So we're still in our infancy inside in in our in our cloud journey. Um you always hear AWS talk about every day's day one, et cetera. I'll say, well, we're day one, but maybe ten minutes into day one. But we have a it's always been in my intention when we're when we were looking to do the cloud is to do it correctly. What I didn't want to do was take an on-premise virtual machine and run it. I'll use AWS as an example and just make EC two instances, right? I think that's the quickest way to maybe fail in the cloud and to cost a lot of money, et cetera. So the way multi-cloud, and, you know, even on our journey to the cloud is we were the first in the Scottish government to do an end-to-end serverless solution. You know, this is in 2017, I mean, 2018. You know, and that was, you know, it's not just an S3 bucket. It's like, there's a whole fleet of serverless solutions. And ultimately what it was, was is it gave the business what they wanted. It cost us $8 a day to run, and there's no operational overhead. So that's really cool. But the idea that multi-cloud is, is when, when, I, when I got on that, just around about, yeah, just uh, coming into lockdown, et cetera, was I, I speak to a lot of these CTOs and CIOs, et cetera, and I was kind of I was speaking to them, so asking "Are like, are you doing multi-cloud? And if so how are you doing it? And like, yeah, we're doing multi-cloud. And I'm like, oh, okay, how does that work? And they're like, yeah, we've got this workload on AWS and we've got this workload on Azure and this workload on GCP. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, how quickly or easily can you interchange those workloads? And they're like, oh, no, no, they're, they're native to the platform. And, and i was like how long though and they're like oh that's months if not years and i'm like well that's that's quite a risk right i'll caveat it at the end and on all the different options so the only way to do true multi-cloud is by containerization and the orchestration of it but and maybe here's the caveat is is you should host your workloads based on their requirements that's what kind of drove me into this multi-cloud kind of uh, strategy was is too often In just about every organization, they have a cloud-first policy. And a lot of people interpret that as, hey, I've got a new application, stick it in the cloud. Or, hey, I've got a legacy transformation project, stick it in the cloud. Now, in reality, maybe 90% maybe does sit in the cloud, but you should host those workloads based on the requirements. Now, that might mean on a physical platform, probably unlikely. It might mean on a virtual platform in a virtual machine. It might mean on a virtual platform in a container. It might be on a a container on a cloud platform. It may be cloud native services, and it might be serverless. But understand all your options there, and then host it based on its workloads. And I'll touch on one of the challenges and you mentioned there, Craig, about you know when you're trying to put ideas over, et cetera. Um, and what's been difficult for me over the over the lockdown is, is it's extremely difficult to sell ideas over video, right? I almost felt like I lost my magic wand. Because I, you know, I'm I enjoy engaging with people and and you know, seeing face to face and going around and meeting people. And yeah, it felt like I lost my kind of Magic Wand. So when I was pitching this idea to the senior civil servants, they were they were like, Oh, I don't know, it's difficult, you know. And I'm like yeah. So the the angle I put it at was why does everyone just put their workloads into one cloud provider and the one that got their head around it was it's a bit like a doctor and you go to see the doctor and he or she prescribes you the same prescription that the doctor he or she's prescribed every other patient they've seen that day right and you're like well that doesn't that doesn't make sense because everyone's unique it's the same with your workloads okay so that that was the premise and they went okay that kind of makes sense but what i'm saying here is 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 True multi-cloud and the containerized approach is just another option. Like I said, is it may well be a virtual solution or a cloud-native solution or even a serverless solution is right for you, but host your workloads based on the requirements. So that's, 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 that's the key kind of bit. So what we looked at was how do we take a workload on-premise and migrate it around numerous hyperscale cloud providers? Um, so we were currently running Kubernetes on-premise inside a Red Hat OpenShift. And what we looked at was was again we used a relatively simple application um, front end web server and a back end database. Um, it's you know, it's it's the same as the Oracle Spark to to x86 solution. There's it's a slide scale. The more complex the app, sometimes the more difficult it can be to try and to try and do the solution. But what we ultimately done was we took a workload from on premise, VMware inside open on OpenShift, and took that workload and then ran it into AWS onto running on OpenShift. And that took a minute and a half. And it's this is a website, effectively. Um, so that was quite cool, right? It's like, wow, right, that's quite powerful. We then ran it over into Azure, again, a minute and a half. And we then um, ran it back down on-premise into the VMware um, estate on-premise inside the Scottish government's data center. And that's, that, that was quite powerful. All right, we've proven the ability to move workloads. But the real kicker for this was with the tools that we were using, is we also had the ability to migrate away from our enterprise Kubernetes platform. So I mentioned that we were running the on-premise, we're running in Red Hat OpenShift, and we were able to migrate it to any Hyperscale cloud provider, but still on OpenShift. What we could also do was we were able to migrate our enterprise Kubernetes platform. So we took that, that workload on-premise, on VMware, on OpenShift, and ran it natively into AWS onto AKS. And then migrated that same workload over into Azure onto AKS and then migrated it back down onto um, VMware on OpenShift. We could have migrated onto Tanzu if, if we so. And that's that's hugely powerful. So no longer were you, on the first example, you weren't tied to your hyperscale cloud provider or your on-premise data center because we proved you could run those workloads. But also you weren't tied to your, to your enterprise Kubernetes platform. And so that's hugely powerful from a... A, a licensing standpoint as well. Um, you know, OpenShift's a, 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 an excellent Kubernetes platform, but it, it costs money. And come negotiation time for renewal, etc. right? And given the, the current price of the dollar to the pound, um, you know, whenever that, that, that's poor, it always affects, particularly in the UK, the cost. It may be too expensive. So when you go to Red Hat and go, no, I think that's too expensive. You know, you a lot of the times you're kind of, they know you're kind of hard-pinned and it'll take too long for you to migrate away. Well, in reality, We're no longer. So it puts the power back into the the customer's hands, which is where it should be, right? So it keeps them kind of on their toes. So I mentioned that. That was managing the data layer and the Kubernetes platform. And we used a vendor for that. And that was, um, we used Portworx. So that was a pure storage acquisition recently. And we used Portworx to migrate that data layer because whenever you're using containers, it's always data that's key. Containers are great for, for stateless applications, but we don't have any stateless applications in the government, right? So it's all stateful. And how you manage that. And that managed that whole piece, the, the the data layer, including the Kubernetes application state. And that's how we were able to migrate away. And there were some challenges. OpenShift used roots, no one else uses roots, or Rancho uses projects. So you just be acutely aware on those idiosyncrasies. But then we also enterprised it up. We took it to the next level as is okay, rather than migrating it from say AWS to Azure just over the internet, how are we going to do ne- proper network connectivity? And we worked with another vendor who done multi-cloud networking. And then we worked with another vendor to do security and compliance. And they're the three kind of key pillars in a kind of proper, true multi-cloud. It's the data layer, it's the networking layer, and it's security compliance. So when you wrap that all up, we had a great idea, a great concept. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story on that. And it leads back to the kind of team. Uh, we were uh, we We're on a group chat on a Friday night at 9.30. And <laughs> it just someone put out a comment. And then the solution kind of born from there to then coming in on the, on the Monday to then trying to thread this out and go, OK, is this going to be possible? And if it's possible, how easy do you think we can do it? So it was a great it was a real powerful story and it took it took a, it gave us as another option in our toolbox in terms of the solution we can provide. Hey, if we want the ability to have the portability, then this solution is the way moving forward. So it's a hugely exciting project. We're still in our infancy on that, but it's one it's one thing having an idea. And that's what the government's great at is having like a white paper or a strategy, but they never follow through or they never really prove it. So what I do is when I got a strategy is like, hey, here's here's an idea let's prove it, let's enterprise it up, and then let's implement it. Because then that's something that people can tangibly get hold of and go, well, you've not just talked about it, you've actually proven it and you've actually done it.
0: Yeah, and you've mentioned quite a few different vendors there and and how they all need to come together. How, obviously, vendors are extremely important in being able to run these multi-clouds, these workloads. How do you go about selecting the right vendor Is there a process or or do you you just have very good knowledge of of what's available according to what you need?
1: It's a difficult one. There's so many vendors out there, right? There's so many startups and I'm not one just to pick an established company, right? Sometimes you have to take a calculated but educated guess on things. However, it goes back to the proof of concept um, idea, Craig, I always want to test the product first before I want to implement it. And if I'm really driven and we have enough time, I'll do multiple vendors that do the same thing and let those vendors know that they're they're each competing against each other for this potential solution. So it keeps them on point. Because what you find is many vendors will sell you the dream. And that dream's probably true, but in a greenfield site. Now, unfortunately, the government, yeah, there's very, very f- few occurrences where you've got a, a greenfield project where you can you're starting from scratch. So it's always good to actually go, okay, you say your product can do this. Let's see if it can. Um, and that's that's how I kind of operate. Again, it's more about, and it's also letting the guys explore new technologies as well, right? They are, they're the ones going to be playing about with it. So it's kind of cool for them. Traditionally in the government, what you'll find... And I kind of use a little bit of it, but it's not, it's not, it's not my, my main drive. Is Gartner? The government love the Gartner quadrant. You know, if it's if it's top right, you know, that's that's the one we want to get. And in reality, that's not always the case. So it's always proofy concepts. Engage with a vendor and see what it can actually do. Because sometimes you actually find, like I said, when we were using Portworks, it was more mainly to manage the data layer. It was just through an off the cuff discussion when we were in, engaging with Portworks. And when we were actually, they were helping us set it all up and help us do it. Was they were like, "Yeah, we can actually migrate the, your your Kubernetes <laughs> platform as well." And I was like, "What? Wait!" Um, I was like, "Yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted, I wanted to see that." And that was cool, right? It was, it was, So again, it's all about engagement and talking. I think, as I say, that that goes back to more my role. It's about I'm the kind of spokesperson, the the mouthpiece of what the guys are doing. But I like the the vendor relationship, etc. And I, I put a, a great deal of faith in that vendor relationship. It's it's all about relationship to me. I always say, it doesn't matter how many years I've been with a company and think the product's great, I always tell them, if a new company comes along that does the same product, does the same thing or better and cheaper, then hey, you know, it's I'm, I'm going to have to move because I always, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit cliche, but I, I always treat the government's money like it's my own, right? And so if I can, if I can do solutions which provide the end user, the people of Scotland, what they need and quicker and cheaper then yeah this is it's a
0: no-brainer. And are you seeing the government embrace these new technologies a lot easier now especially after multiple proofs of concepts some projects that went ahead of schedule are they seeing the advantages and and are they buying into the tech more say you know pre-COVID versus now which is not really post-COVID but <laughs> yeah getting through it.
1: Uh, yeah, it was weird. So we were, particularly in the government, we were really poor on video technology uh, pre-COVID, right? We didn't really have a video technology solution, and it was great. You know, this is this is out with my zone, but it's credit to them. The the acceleration on how they delivered during covid things that were now a mandatory requirement it was it was excellent and it actually cut down some of that red tape and bureaucracy because it needed to deliver something quickly but if you look at the bigger picture craig is when you talk about government and I'll talk about the central uk government as well you look at like nhsx and and different the international development and hmrc you know and and there's a lot of kind of government kind of meetups etc and actually there is some really cool stuff going on you know the government the government's still can still be slightly behind on the curve, but there is there is pockets in there where they are being really innovative. They are being more engaging, and I always think if the more attractive you can become in the government in terms of hey, we're 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 no longer at the bottom of the curve, we're on the curve. It'll attract people in, and it might attract people like me who think hey, you're doing some cool new stuff, so I can cut my teeth doing that and get some great training. And who knows, right? They might they, they might just stick around, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if someone comes in. And you get four, five, six years out of them, and you move on somewhere else. That's just that's that's just natural, right? Um, so it's all about just identifying the people, um, but selling yourself and going. We are doing some cool stuff, and we do have some great terms and conditions. You know, sometimes it's not always down to the the bottom dollar, right? We don't, we we certainly don't pay as well as other um, organisations. But when you add it all up, you know, there's plenty of holidays and flexi time and. And, um, some good perks it adds up, but it can be a great place to work if you're in the right area, and there are some real good pockets out there where are doing some real cool um stuff.
0: and are you recruiting at the moment for your your team?
1: Oh, always recruiting. um the way I always say is, um, yeah <laughs> you know you I, I get a lot of CVs just randomly um about always recruiting, and we we have a bit of a mixed hybrid. We have um. Uh, civil servants and contractors in my team so there's always a drive to replace the contractors with them um, civil servants Is it's not always about the experience and the certification you know and this was like hey yeah i'm aws um associate certified and all this kind of stuff or, or professional etc and that can be great but what i put a huge amount of focus on is is it's the individual again it's hey you might not have a great experience or background or any certification. But if you're telling me that you're genuinely interested in what you do and you do it in your own spare time, you know, that's what I used to do. It's what I, you know, it's what a lot of the guys in the team do. You know, they knock off. But there are still, there's a funny story. I've got a guy who's on holiday right now. And he's in Lanzarote and he, he texts me in um, um, last week and he goes yeah just nipping down the pool doing some uh, AWS <laughs> training and I was like leave it alone but that's him right he just loves it <laughs> otherwise he'd be bored and it's those type of individual and it's difficult to find those people but it's about if if I can find those individuals that want to do that type of role and I create the right culture and the right environment then they're going to excel they're going to be great, and then once again, people are going to go, "Hey, Neil, you're doing a great job." When in reality, it's those guys that are doing the great job. I'm just like providing that kind of environment. So, yeah, always, always looking to recruit, and you know, we are we are an attractive place given this, you know, the cool stuff and some of the cutting edge stuff we're doing. So,
0: and then talking about the future of technology, what excites you the most? Is there anything you know coming down the line that you you're looking forward to working on or? Or any sort of new technology, you think is going to change the face of uh, of the government or business? Yes, has so
1: many things, right? It's just it's, it's crazy. So obviously, I think multi cloud is going to be when you start seeing referencing Gartner again. They're now sort of talking about how many people are talking about multi cloud now, etc. I think multi cloud is going to be the new big thing, and probably Kubernetes plays a long bit into that. Ironically, I was. I've seen a cool thing the other day and it's it's weird cuz it's not it's not this most sexiest thing in terms of storage but it was called um holographic storage and I was like what and it sounded really cool um and it's all about how it's um environmentally friendly etc how uh, and it can store data with no power or something for like 60 years etc and it's all this kind of cool stuff I I love just kind of hearing things and then maybe just going hey can we can of take a look at it but there's yeah, there's so many things moving forward. It's it's crazy. I think if you were to say ask that question five years ago to see where we are now, crazy. It's, it's you know I wouldn't I wouldn't have hit the mark. I think it's just constantly evolving, constantly changing, and it's just it's just keeping abreast of it. It's it's engaging in conferences and listening to podcasts and just getting an idea and 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 seeing what's out there, but. But cloud is here to stay, and it's, it's how that evolves. And what I'm trying to do here is with the multi cloud bit is try and put the power back into our hands, so we have the ability to to move workloads around freely as possible. But there's uh, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the the, the, the line, but who knows if it if it sticks. Uh, but yeah, I'll I'll certainly be in an, in amongst it to try and find something that's. that's
0: I know that question where you say, what do you see in the next five years? I mean, it's so hard, just in the next year, it's hard enough to predict, isn't it? Especially the way everything's changed. And then are there any topics or themes that you think aren't getting enough attention in in, say the multi-cloud world? I think there's still a misconception in terms of
1: what multi-cloud actually means and I think a lot of people and a lot of companies have went down that path where they think they're doing multi-cloud but they're actually just tying themselves in, into a multiple hyperscale cloud vendor that's restricting them for the, those workloads and it's it's extremely difficult to get skills for even one hyperscale cloud provider right so that's that's always the fear when you say multi-cloud to somebody they always go Oh, oh, no, um, we're struggling to recruit AWS skills. The last thing I want to do is try and recruit Azure or GCP skills, et cetera. But in reality, if you make it agnostic as possible and the containerized kind of approach, then it's pretty much a moot point. You, it doesn't really matter where it sits on. I mean, you have to understand if when you use Kubernetes, that kind of platform. But in reality, it's true multi-cloud is, is based on that. It's not hard pinning you to, to, um, to different... Uh, hyperscale cloud providers i I mean no excuse for saying you know none of this is easy right i mean you know talking about it makes it sound easy and it was a relatively simple project but it's when you grow out it starts to become difficult etc and getting getting cloud skills difficult getting kubernetes skills difficult and particularly when you're in the government it's less attractive so that becomes difficult but then that allows more of the train the people up, allow them the time and the space and the environment to experiment and play. But yeah, I think th- there's still a, a big misconception of what the word multi-cloud actually means. And and I think in the coming year or so, I think more and more people will realize that oh, okay, I'm not doing multi-cloud. So we might want to consolidate into one where you want to do cloud native services. But it's a challenge in itself. I mean I'm I'm actually debating myself here now, Craig, because not one cloud provider does <laughs> does everything brilliant, right? You know, AWS has their real cool stuff, but then Azure does some some things better than 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 AWS, and GCP does some things better than Azure and AWS. And it's that kind of piece. And an ideal scenario is, is you could consume it all with relative flexibility to move when you want. But it's it's age-old thing in IT. You've, you've you've got to you've got to hitch your ride. You 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 got to put your hat on something somewhere. There's always an element of tying. But if you if you try and be minimal tied or agnostic as possible, then it makes it easier to to try and complete that dream, that utopia, you know, an ideal scenario is you can move any workload anywhere um, using any any Hyperscale Cloud's own services, but that's, 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 a, that's, that, that's the
0: impossible dream. Yeah, great. And then, I mean, we spoke then about uh, skills uh, there, there seems to be a lot of talk about skills shortages and, and skills gaps is that something that you're experiencing at the moment and what do you do you guys have any plans to address that or are you guys so far you, you sort of managing that okay enhanced? yeah
1: skills are skills are difficult um we recently put one out for a cloud engineer there was no one suitable once again as I'm uh, i'm i'm only going to recruit when i want when there's someone that would bring value it's not a case again in the government sometimes you'll put an advert out and you'll just take you'll take somebody you know maybe the best of a bad bunch etc um so we had to go out externally on and this was externally, but we had to go to to get a contractor and even then it was coming challenging right um uh, some of the day rates are, are getting high etc so there's a there's a real challenge there so what we have to realize is is even if, if it's difficult getting them in as contractors and they're an expensive dairy. We have to look internally on how we're doing. So we have um, numerous training vendors. We have uh, contracts with them, um, with a Cloud Guru and Plural site and Cloud Academy QA and so forth. And they've got great training plans for 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 cloud etc. And not just cloud, also Kubernetes. So we now have a quite a, an in-depth training plan for those modern technologies, starting from basically from minimal understanding all the way through to, to, to advanced and where in that training plan it's where that person joins in, et cetera. So that's kind of where we're at. We realise that we you have to invest in the technology and and there, sh- and there should be no fear, even if you're investing in um, you have to invest in the people, there's no fear in investing in the people and then hey, they leave to go somewhere else. Well, that's great, right? You've, you've you've done a great job there because clearly you've taken somebody who now is attractive to an external place an external company, and that's that. You should you should you should take that as a as a good thing, not a bad thing, right? Well, I can't remember what was, what's always the phrase. it's You know, what happens if you train people and they leave? What's the phrase? What happens if you don't train them and they stay? Right, it's, they you know, stay. Yeah, <laughs> it's that concept. But training's one of the things during lockdown. I used to always say to the guys is they had one day a week could train they can do whatever they want whether that's YouTube or some of the training plans that, that, that they've got but it doesn't have to be one full day you could spend over a number of hours or I say some weeks they might not do any but it's allowing that kind of flexibility and I, you know that's that's 20% of the time but again yeah. it's allowing them the ability to, to explore and learn and, and and see what's down there and, but that's quite unique in the government as well because a lot of people a lot of people say they're really busy and they're firefighting, but then that goes back to we're quite lucky. We come from a technical background and we can automate a lot of stuff. So whereas, you know, some maybe sometimes in, a, in the business, they don't have the ability because they don't have the skills to be able to automate, etc. So, So um, no, but training is key to, to fixing this solution. But I think that's not just for the government. I think that's far and wide. I think everybody, regardless of who you are, is struggling to, to recruit because everyone's doing the technology, but there's still a dearth of the, the skills out there.
0: Exactly. Great. Well, we've found out a little bit more about your career and what you've been getting up to uh, within the government. But let's talk a little bit about Neil Smith um, as an individual. So this is our sort of our more fun round where we get to know you a bit better. Uh, and there's a few questions. I'll just throw them out to you if you just answer them. Uh, first thing that pops into your head normally is the best one. Um, but do you have any sort of guilty technology pleasures? <laughs> And that could be an app. That could be, I don't know, software. Anything <laughs> like that.
1: Um, uh, weirdly, um, my I've, I've got a youngish daughter, and um, she still has um, uh, the Furby. Remember Furby? So uh, play with that and educate. And, 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 uh, no, do you not know no, no, Furby? It's oh, Google it after this, right? It's a silly little funny robotic <laughs> thing. But it came out years ago. It's still kind of roundabout now, and it's, it's you, you kinda, It's almost like you. It's, it's, it's like a child almost. Um, so of, uh, is it like a Tamagotchi? It, kind like kind of, yeah, but it's a lot fluffier. It looks a lot okay. more cuter for the kind of stuff. And so we have, we, have, we have good fun still playing with that. And uh, for a an nap, <laughs> it'll be, this is old school as well, a Championship Manager, 93-94. So that's a, an old school football game. Um, I'm, I'm travelling down to London uh, later this afternoon for work. And uh, once I've finished doing my work stuff, um, I'll be loading that up back on my laptop. Uh, it's always my go-to. You know, it's almost that thirty, almost thirty years old, but it's dead simple and basic. They, 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 you know, there's a champ, there's a champion or a football manager, twenty twenty two. But it's all in depth, and they've, they've really, you know, and I'm like, no, I just want something simple. I want to buy and sell players, pick a formation and, and play. So, um, <laughs> like yeah, Championship yeah, Manager 93, cool. 94 man.
0: My, my go-to. Yeah, yeah. interesting. <laughs> And then how would your family describe what you do versus what your friends describe what you do? And then even, you know, what does your boss think you do?
1: (laughs) So I think my friends refer to me as a, as a techno dweeb, which (laughs) is, I'll take that. I'll I'll take it. It's, it's, It's endearing. My boss, and again, it goes back to, I'm lucky, right? I've got that autonomy and he understands. And I think that goes back to actual good leadership, right? I mean, um, managers and leaders are totally different, right? And he's, I'm all on the leadership, but leadership's all about people, et cetera, and understanding the people. And he's very much that. So he understands who I am, what I'm good at. So he kind of gives me that autonomy and understands that, hey, do you want to write this silly government paper for something that he knows is just going to be a waste of time and it'll just, it'll just stifle me kind of thing? And he's like, no. So um, he used to refer me to stuff. He goes, um, uh, I do magic, of stuff and again, I'll sell him. I was like, "Well, it might look like magic, but really, the magic's happening in the team." I'm just, uh, yeah, it's a bit like the words of the odds, right? It's uh, <laughs> I'm the odds, right? But really, I'm just a, a, a silly guy behind the curtain <laughs> pulling a few strings. But he, he classes magic. Um, what else? Oh yeah, my, my, my... Your
0: family. What do, do they know what you
1: do? Say again. How was that, Craig? Your family. Oh, family. Yeah. So my daughter uh, refers to me as. Uh, IT, but she sees me around, um, whether it's podcasts or I'm recording them on YouTube and all, so she goes, I'm on web, as she likes to call it. Was <laughs> like, that, oh, you're on web. <laughs> on web, you're on web, or she'll, and now she's she's she's, get, she's getting older now, and she's got a tablet, and she, she she Googles, like, Neil Smith on the images, and I've got two L's in my name, so it's quite unique, and then she finds pictures of my LinkedIn picture,
0: and <laughs> she goes, oh, you're on web, IT worker on web, so... Um, and then, are you reading any good books or listening to any good podcasts? Uh, yeah, um, less so books, more so podcasts. I love
1: you. you're Probably, if people that that know Simon Sinek, you'll probably hear that I've just basically ripped off mm. most of his stuff on the conversation we just had. They're great. Um, he has <laughs> a bit of optimism, and I, I, yeah, ev- everything he kind of says resonates. Uh, years ago, when I found out about him, I was like, "Oh my God, this is this is this is this is me. This is this is this is exactly what I think." But it was very very difficult, and also relatively new. over the last couple of years. It's um, Stephen Bartlett. So, the Diary of a CEO. Um, he's he was on. End up being on Dragons Den, but again, he's got. He understands that mindset. You know, sister. Uh, you know, there must there must be incredibly. Great to work for these type of individuals, where you're Simon Sinek and Stephen Bartlett because their they, 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 their mindset's spot on, and I think that's I think that's what I'm trying to achieve. So yeah, I'd say those five podcasts. I'm not, yeah, it's more sort of factual kind of stuff um, that that I like listening to,
0: or things that I can kind of steal, right? <laughs> and kind of go, hey, that's a yeah. great idea. I'll use that. <laughs> at the, end of the day, <laughs> and then uh, this sort of relates to that one, but you you speak at a lot of conferences, you go to a lot of events. You must share and see a lot of other um experts within the, the sort of technology sector. Have you seen any good speakers or has anyone inspired you recently? Uh,
1: yeah. God, I'm trying to remember the chap's name. I was I was down at the Cloud Expo London in March and I got speaking to a guy from he was like the CTO of Starling Bank. Oh that's gonna go name I can't remember. Oh my god, he was he was an eye-opener. I was I was like this is gold. Everything he was saying was so, and then when you start piecing that together, how it's a a young upcoming bank, et cetera, and you can see how they, they have to move forward. Yeah, there's, there's numerous, there's numerous people. I've seen a few years ago, pre-lockdown, I've seen a guy called, um he used to work for the EMC, American guy, Chad Sasek, and he'd done the Pecha Kucha presentation, which I'd never seen before. And it's like, you know, five seconds a slide, and it's just a picture, and it's automated for like twenty-five slides. And I was like, man, and it, it, over over even the, up till now, and that was a few years ago. I was like, I really, I'd love to do that. I've never, I've never tried it, never executed it, and in, in stuff. But again, it's sometimes it's the people who's actually given the message. Other times it's the people, but also how they present it, right? But yeah, there has been. Yeah, there's, just but yeah, there's, there, there's, a lot of people out there that that's really engaging. I always think it's not, it's, it's not always about the individual. It's about just how they engage and how they, how they kind can, of can come across. And I think, I think that's what stands me in good stand, Craig. Is, is I'm very, uh, I know it's a podcast and stuff, but I can be slightly excitable and my hand movements go quite a bit and stuff like that. And again, it's a lot of people like, think, oh, that's really um, engaging and you know, and and you're drawing, you're drawing people in. But it's, you know, it's all just. It's all just luck. It all just naturally happens. I like to say I'd, I'd worked at it, but but it's not. Yeah.
0: To- well, it's a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing, a little <laughs> yeah. bit of hard yep. work all, all <laughs> together, isn't it? <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, Neil. That uh, brings us to an end to this uh, podcast. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you, and I know our guests will enjoying, uh, well, enjoy hearing what you said. So thank you for sharing your insight with us today.
1: Perfect. Th- thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak about it today, Craig.
0: Much brief. And uh, yeah, I'll be definitely looking out for you uh, on the circuit and hopefully I can get to meet you in person one day. But uh, to the listeners, if you you enjoyed that, then please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I think Neil uh, will also be attending an upcoming Chief Wine Officer event. Is that right, Neil? Am I making that up? (laughs) Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> so yeah, we, uh, we host some wine events on the side along with the podcast and they'll be one of our guests there. So uh, be sure to look out for that and register if you're interested and thank you very much. Have a good day, everyone. Bye.